Saturday evening. All right, James chapter 3 is where we're going to be as we continue our study through the letter of James, the half-brother of Jesus. And as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you that uh, James is writing this letter to a group of people who have been dispersed. They've been sent out from Jerusalem, largely through persecution. The word of God is going throughout all the Roman Empire, but it, it comes at the hands of some pretty costly prices. There's much persecution happening there in Jerusalem for this early church. And so James writes this letter as an encouragement, and he begins encouraging them by saying, hey, um, you're going to have trials and tribulations. So if any of you are in here and you've ever had a trial or any kind of tribulation in your life, uh, good news, this letter's for you. And if you've not had any trials or any tribulations, you might tune out right now, uh, but you might not exactly be telling the truth either. So this is probably for all of us right here, right now. And what we find is in chapter 1, uh, we find it clear that God allows trials in our life. God does not uh, cause trials, or he doesn't, uh, he doesn't go looking to provide you with a trial, but he does allow a trial to happen for the purpose of maturity. But as a trial happens in our life, what Satan does is he comes in the midst of a trial, and he brings temptation. And his desire isn't to mature us, but instead to see us destroyed. He wants us to be tripped up. Ultimately, what he wants us to do is quit. That's really what he's looking to get you to, to quit completely and totally. And so temptations are brought around to destroy us, to stop us. But what James says, and Paul's going to echo it here in Romans chapter 5, James says, count it all joys when you fall into various trials. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Know that we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so as we fall into various trials and tribulations, we are the people that actually have hope. Where the world outside at large has no hope whatsoever, we can actually have hope because of the work that Christ Jesus has done for us. Through just simply believing in him, we know that we have a future and a promise. We know that there's something better out there ahead and that he's actually looking to take this circumstance and grow us inside of what we are experiencing. And what we found in the end of chapter one is that Jesus is all about relationships being rebuilt. That he points out widows and orphans are the ones that we are to come alongside and care for. And there's no two uh, groups of people that have seen more broken relationship than those two. And what we find is Jesus is all about relationships being repaired and restored, starting, starring, starting excuse me, with the one between us and God the Father. That he came specifically for the purpose of reconnecting for us, to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, to relink us. That's what the word religion ultimately means. It's to relink. We couldn't do it for ourselves, but he did it all for us. And through faith in him, we can actually be relinked to God the Father. Now in chapter 2, what we find is James focuses not on the relationship, but the result of that which is works. As we grow in this relationship, as we're excited now that we've been reconnected with the Father, what happens is I cannot wait to go out and share. I cannot wait to go out and share, but I can also not wait to go out and do. I'm excited to go out there to the world around and share what Jesus is up to in my life. And so it's not that we have faith by works. We don't have faith and works. We have a faith that works. Our Faith, our belief, shows up in, in, in a practical way in our life through works. 
That's what James says. And what he makes it very clear, and James doesn't mince any words, he says, look, if you claim to have faith by your words, and yet you have no actions to back it up at all, uh, guess what you've got? Dead faith. You don't have any faith at all. That the actions, that the way that we handle ourselves, that what we go out and do is actually a proof. It's a fruit of what Jesus is doing in our life. Now, he's going to make that very clear about works in our lives, but today he's going to turn around and focus back on words. Oh, wait a minute. I thought words didn't matter. It was all about works. No, no. It's, it's both together. What you guys know in your life, you know this all too well, is that words matter. Words that we say, sometimes words that we do not say, they matter very, very much. In fact, what Solomon would say in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, if you want to mark your Bible in Proverbs, we're going to be turning here a few different times. But what Solomon says about words, he says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. That's a beautiful picture. Words fitly spoken are like apples of gold and settings of silver. And what you know is that the right word spoken at the right time, wow, how powerful that can be. How impactful that can be if someone comes alongside you and they deliver just what you need to hear when you need to hear it. But conversely, what you also know is the wrong word said at the wrong time, wow, how that can destroy. That can tear someone down in a heartbeat. And so we're going to look at this dichotomy, these two different sides, but a a right word spoken at the right time, how that can build up, and a wrong word, how it can tear down. And we're going to start at a place that, uh, well, it makes me uncomfortable because we're going to start right off the bat, James chapter 3, verse 1, talking about uh, the pastor. Chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. That's reassuring. Uh, Knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. Now, we start off with the person that is speaking right now because uh, the job should not be taken lightly. The job of one who gets to communicate the word of God is one that will fall under a stricter judgment. And if I wanted to feel even a little bit better, I could turn and see what Jesus has to say in Matthew 18. Maybe this will will make me uh, feel even better about me. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, if you start your week off studying that, there's no way you can't feel good about you, right? But this is how serious God takes the teaching of his word. That's what is important to understand. And so for anyone who is called into this, life of teaching the Word of God, it is vitally important for us to understand that God takes it very, very seriously. Because much like what Moses found is that God's character is vitally important to him. And the reason Moses could not go into the promised land wasn't because God didn't love him. It was because he misrepresented the character of God. And the last thing that any pastor should want to do or any preacher or any teacher of the Word of God should want to do is misrepresent God and His character. And so it's why it is so important that a pastor be called into ministry. I'm amazed how many times I am talking to someone who is in ministry and I ask them, so how were you called? How did you end up in this spot? And instead of getting a calling, you get a resume. You see, a resume doesn't matter squat. It, it, what matters and what is vitally important is were you called into this by God Almighty? 
You can study all you want. You can spend all the time you want to in seminary. You can have the greatest of educations. But if you have not been called, I would caution anyone from teaching the Word of God just based upon what Jesus said and what James is echoing in verse 1. You're going to stand before God and receive a stricter judgment. Now, on the flip side, if you are called, then you need to make sure you are fulfilling that calling, that you are teaching. In fact, that's the spot Jeremiah found himself in, in Jeremiah chapter 20. And in this place, Jeremiah has been uh, trying to speak the word of God into the lives of people who would not listen. For 40 years, Jeremiah shared God's word for them. The word was repentance. Turn away from your wicked ways. And he shared it over and over and over again. And he had exactly zero people listen to him. So he was so upset, so beside himself that no one was listening to what God was trying to communicate to the people that what he finally came to is, I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to stop altogether. And in verse 9, and then I said, Jeremiah speaking, I will not make mention of him speaking of God. I will not speak any more of his name. I'm done. I'm out. I'm checked out of this whole situation. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary of holding it back. Because Jeremiah was called by God, set apart by him to communicate his word, he couldn't hold it back. It was like a burning fire within him. He had to go and share. And this is the spot that he found himself. And so if you're called into this, then teach you must. But on the flip side, what we have to understand is sometimes, even for a teacher, even for a preacher who was called, uh, sometimes we still get it wrong. <laughs> sometimes, no matter how much we study, no matter how much time we spend, we still can manage to make a mistake and stumble and trip. In fact, what Proverbs chapter 10 verse 19 says, as I flip back in Proverbs just a little further, Solomon says, in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Uh, but... He who restrains his lips is wise. So in a multitude of words, and this is reassuring for someone that gets to share with you for 40 to 45 minutes every week, in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. There is going to be at some point in time a trip, a stumble. And, and here's the thing. When we say a word, it is not easily taken back. It is very difficult to retract it once we have let it fly out of our mouth, which is why we're to be prudent about the words that we use. Now, we started this church in September of 2020, uh, September the 13th to be exact. And when we started, there were only a handful of people, maybe 20 to 25, uh, that gathered here, including kids. And so it was a pretty small congregation. So when a new couple showed up, it was easy to spot. And about a month in, uh, there was a beautiful young couple that came, and they were dressed up because they didn't know that we're fairly casual. And so I was excited to see them here. And they came in, and they sat back there in the back. And so, again, not many people. It was easy to to you know, decide and realize they're new. And as I'm teaching the Word of God and, and the Lord's moving on me, I begin to share a story. And it, it wasn't in my notes. And so I'm going off script and I'm sharing this story about trials and tribulations. And I begin to share with them about uh, how the Lord worked through a trial in my life where I'd had uh, something cut off of my back. And it was, I was describing the region of where it was located on my back, my lower back, above my tailbone. And in an effort to try to describe where this spot was cut off on my back, I said it was right above my butt crack. I'm like, oh, no. 
I just said the word butt crack in church. And I looked at this couple and the color drained out of their face. I mean, they'd already dressed up expecting something liturgical and fairly serious. And then I said the word butt crack. And now I'm trying to figure out how to pull the words back. And I'm, all, I'm live on the book of face. And I'm like, oh. So I begin to apologize several times or stumble over myself and manage to say butt crack like three or four more times as I'm trying to apologize. Needless to say, they never came back. <laughs> Ever one time did they reenter. And, and, but the reality is our words are hard to take back, Right? There, there are sometimes things we say, even in the excitement of the moment, where we cannot recoil. And what Solomon says, but he who restrains his lips is wise. I didn't practice enough restraint. Thankfully, I've never made that mistake again. There you go. At the end of verse 2 here, for we all stumble in many things. And this is the key verse in this chapter. If anyone does not stumble in the word, the word he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. And so for the one who does not stumble, for the one that does not trip up over his words, he is a perfect man, or the word could be translated mature. It's maturity for the one who can bridle the tongue. A a bridled tongue is a mature tongue. Now, what we find is uh, quickly, my words can actually have things stumble and fall apart, much like the story that I just shared. But having a controlled tongue is actually the key to a controlled life. Now, many of you have got the person in mind, even as I say it, who is so good at controlling their words. And isn't it amazing how much they, they take on the picture of wisdom for us? The one who is just so together with their words, they're calculated, they're precise in what they say. And what you find is they show and display control with their mouth and their life is typically in order and controlled as well. And so often that's who I desire to be. I'm struggling still to get there, obviously, but uh, that is what we desire to have is a controlled life that shows itself with the tongue being under control. Now, verse 3, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. And even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is also set among our members, that it defiles the whole body and sets it on fire, the course of nature. It is set on fire by hell. And so I hate to disagree with uh, Billy Joel, but the reality is what James tells us is we did in fact start the fire. Our tongue is what did it, right? And so it's amazing how just these small little pieces of metal for a large ship or a sea vessel when you consider it, or for a huge animal like a horse, a 20-ounce bit in its mouth can control a 1,000-pound animal, and so too is our tongue. What Solomon again says about the tongue in our life, Proverbs chapter 18, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 21, he says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, for those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And what we find is that harsh words can destroy not only people, but also reputations. And the same can be said conversely of kind words. 
How many times can a kind word that is spoken actually give us encouragement and, and the power to go on and to keep going. Uh, husbands, you know this to be true. If your wife comes alongside you and she gives you a compliment, boy, honey, you look good in that shirt today. Even if it's not the truth. Man, how it puffs us up. It's like, wow, I do look pretty good today. Thank you. And, and how that encouragement can send us out. And husbands, the same way with your wives. You can offer that word of encouragement for the caretaking and the ability that she has and how that can send us going forth feeling so good about the week to come, the day to come. It can give us fuel to get going. But on the flip side, harsh words, how it can destroy not only people but then also reputations. Now, how should we handle this harshness or these words? Chapter 26 of Proverbs, verse 20, Solomon says, Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tail-bearer, strife ceases. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. What we have to do when we come across the tail-bearer is we have to flee. Leave the scene altogether. Do not sit and take part in what's happening or taking place. And oftentimes in church, it, it'll look fairly innocent. It'll look like, hey, I really need you to pray for so-and-so. Oh, really? What's happening? Well, let me tell you what's going on with them. And it looks like a prayer request. But the reality is it's actually sin being unveiled from their mouth. It's gossip. It's words disguised as prayer requests when they never intended to communicate that at all. And so what I would recommend for you to do if you find yourself in that situation is to be a firefighter, not a fire igniter. And what you can do is right there in the middle of it when you realize what's happening. When the Holy Spirit tips you off, just stop right then and start praying. I don't mean pray inside your head. I mean pray out loud. And the louder you pray, the better it will go. What I have actually practiced this, and it shuts a gossip-filled conversation down completely when you just start praying. And the more you feel like they're a gossip and one that just wants to bring you the latest news, the louder you should pray and the longer you should pray. If you make it one of those old-school King James prayers, you start praying these and thous, man, they will, they will do one of two things. They will never bring you another juicy word again, or they will come back to you and want you to pray pray again if they were sincere about prayer. And so I would encourage you to be one that stops and actually prays in the middle of that situation. Now, why? Why should we stop and pray? Well, here's the deal. Chapter 3, verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Why on earth should I stop and break into prayer in that spot? Because the reality is you don't have the ability to tame your tongue. You don't, and neither do I. The only one that does is Jesus. I need him in that spot. I have to rely upon him because I don't have control of this tiny member inside my body. It is truly a miracle or a work of God to be able to control and tame our tongue. It takes him actively working in our lives. Now continuing, verse 10, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. And I actually skipped verse 9. Verse 9 said, With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who we have made in the who he has made in the similitude of God. And so what we find is this picture is given by James here that a freshwater source, a spring in other words. And one of my favorite springs in all of southern Missouri is a place called Alley Springs. It's a beautiful spot, and what it is is actually a uh, used to be a working mill, but coming up out of the water by the millions of gallons is this beautiful spring, and because of the minerals that are there, it looks just a picturesque blue, almost a turquoise color. It's absolutely gorgeous. But you can imagine if I went to Alley Springs and I saw a sign up that said, hey, on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, this spring actually produces salt water. So be careful on that day. But on uh, Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays, good news for you, it's Freshwater Friday. Come on into the freshwater and enjoy a little bit of fresh water. And as I say that, you guys know that is completely ludicrous. It makes no sense. And yet, how often do we operate like that? Sorry you caught me on a saltwater day. Sorry, today's a day where I don't, I don't have anything fresh to give you. It's only you apparently didn't read the schedule outside. Today is not your day. Sorry, you're going to only get saltiness from me. How is it from our mouth we can both bless God and curse people at the same time? And the reality is because we have a dual nature. I still have an old man. He is dying He's being crucified daily, being put to death, but every now and again, he still rears his ugly head, and he has a big time with me and with my tongue. And I begin to, to curse people. I begin to say bad things about someone, and here's the reality. When I curse someone, it really matters. You see, the reality is um, what people perceive of me is what I really am to them even if that's not true of me. And what I, what I mean by that is imagine if after church today, you guys all go to the county markets, and as you're there, you run into somebody, and they ask you, what have you been up to today? Well, I was at church. I went to Woodlawn Chapel, beautiful building. Oh, really? What did you think? Well, uh, the pastor, uh, I actually know that guy, and he is a, a tremendous liar. He's a big, fat liar, Really? And you go to this church? Well, why? You go there? Yeah, I mean, the worship's fantastic. I mean, Jake and Michaela, they're off the hook. I, so I have to sit through a liar that talks for 40 minutes, but they are really tremendous. And so this rumor is spread, even if it's not true, even if I'm not a liar, guess what? The person on the other end begins to believe it. And what's amazing about this and about our own perception is even if you know me, and those words get in there, you can go, boy, I, I know Brock. That's not his character, but, but you don't suppose he's actually a liar, do you? I mean, maybe there's some truth to that. And it's amazing how these words will get inside our head, and it begins to change and alter our perception of someone based upon what we spread. But imagine if instead of cursing, we instead bless someone in that same way. Have you ever heard when you've met someone for the first time them 
come up to you and say, boy, I've heard good things about you. How does that make you feel? I've heard such good things about you. Good things have been shared. Wow, that is encouraging to hear. So imagine if we were a people that spread blessings instead of cursings, what that would do for the people that we love and care about. Now, for your Old Testament Bible story, I'm going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 21. And in this spot, Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha followed him up, and Elisha has gotten word from people in Jericho. And this Old Testament city that is still there to this day, they had a little problem. You see, the spring that fed the water for the city, it had turned rancid. It had turned bad. It was making people sick. And so uh, Jericho was not going to be a city much longer if things continued this way. No city can survive without a water source. You guys understand that. And so word is given to Elisha, and they ask him to come and pray for the spring. And in verse 21, he went out to the source of the water, and he cast in salt there. And he said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water, and from it shall be no more death or barrenness. And in verse 21, so the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. And to this day, there is still a city of Jericho, and guess what? They even bottle the water in Jericho because it is still fresh, good water to drink, even to this very day, based upon the word of the Lord. But notice what Elisha did. He took a little bit of salt, and he threw it in there, and by the word of the Lord, it was healed. Now I'm going to turn to Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul writes, don't worry, I'm linking this all together. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. May your speech that you have to one another be seasoned with grace and with salt. Now, why salt? What's the importance of salt? Well, in ancient times, salt would do three main things. First of all, it would preserve. When you think about meat, you don't have modern refrigeration. How are you going to keep it intact? Well, you're going to use salt, and in that process, you're going to be able to preserve the meat. Secondly, it could be used to heal and actually pull infection out. Thirdly, it was used, how we like it so much, even to this day, to flavor things, to make the veggies the kids don't want to eat taste just a little bit better. And so three purposes for salt, to preserve, to heal, and to flavor. And the same thing is true with our words. This is why Paul used salt as an example. It was used to heal. How different would our conversations look if as we're talking about someone, we had preservation in mind. I don't want to destroy in this spot. I want to preserve in this spot. I don't want to tear down. I want to heal. And oh, how a word spoken can actually heal a deep wound. And even better, how it can flavor a conversation. I'm not talking about salty language. I'm saying how flavorful should our conversations be as a group of Christians, as a body of believers. If you want to know how we can attract people to the church, be a flavorful person. What nobody's attracted to is a church that is, How great thou art, in my I mean, who in the world is attracted to that? 
The answer is nobody. There's no flavor. It's bland. It's boring. We should be a people that have fun, flavorful conversations, always keeping it tasteful, obviously, but still full of flavor and excitement and joy. I cannot wait to tell you what God is up to with me today, right? Excited to talk about what Jesus is up to. And so how could I add salt to my conversations? How could I be one that is life-giving and graceful? You guys know somebody like that, that when they give you a word, you're like, man, that's like the word of life. I feel rejuvenated and restored today like Elisha with the spring. Life can continue. Now, back to James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct, that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. What Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, is from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And how is it I know what is happening in my heart? What is bubbling up from the spring of your mouth? <laughs> when jealousies are exiting from my face. I know that I have jealousy in my heart that I'm dealing with. When I have envy going on inside my heart and it bubbles out from the top, I know, based upon the words that are coming out, what I'm dealing with. When anger exits my mouth, I know what's happening inside my heart. It is a mirror to my very soul what comes out of this mouth of mine. It reveals what is going on inside us. And so we have an opportunity then, good news, to deal with it as it comes up. How on earth can I deal with these words that are coming out of my mouth? I know I've got a heart issue. What am I supposed to do with that? Well, Ephesians 5 verse 26 says that we can be washed by the water of the word. What I do personally is when I see these things bubbling up to the surface, I take out my fancy AirPods and I pop them in. And I begin to listen to the Word of God. Not my favorite podcast, not classic rock and roll. Sorry, Guns and Roses, you're not doing the trick today. But just the Word of God spoken. And I am amazed at how my heart calms and how the washing of the water of the Word goes in and actually cleanses from the inside out. It's purifying, it's therapeutic. Thank you, Lord, for your Word. Now, verse 15 this wisdom does not descend from above. He's talking about bitter envy and self-seeking from verse 14. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil are done there. But the wisdom that is from above is pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Two different kinds of wisdom that James is sharing with us here at the end of chapter 3. First of which is from heaven, the second of which is from hell. And so as he shares this, he's talking about how to use wisdom in our life. And what is wisdom? You guys know this because we've talked about it before, that wisdom is knowledge applied. It's taking knowledge, taking information, and being able to apply it in our lives. And one of the best analogies I've ever heard of this is uh, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit.
Wisdom is knowing that tomatoes do not belong in fruit salad, right? That is the application of knowledge. Do not put tomatoes in a fruit salad. And so, too, it is in our life that I can have all this knowledge, but if I'm not applying it, then I'm not doing any good whatsoever. And so, what Luke chapter 7 verse 35 tells us by the word of the Lord. I lost Luke. There's Luke. Chapter 7, verse 35 says that wisdom is justified by her children. How do I know what kind of wisdom I have? What kind of children are being produced? I don't mean just physical children. What things are being produced? What fruit is coming? What fruit is being produced in your life? Are you raising up little hell raisers? Are you raising up ones that are willing to yield and serve the Lord. What things are being produced in your life? Does it need to be sent back to where it came from? Back to hell where it belongs. If it is self-serving and self-seeking, that's precisely where it needs to go back to. But if it is willing to yield, like our Savior, then you know it comes from heaven. And boy, how difficult of a passage is that for us especially here in America, where we love our freedom, we love our will, and we don't like to yield to nothing or no one. But what I note about my Savior as I go through Scripture is time and time again, He was willing to yield, always to the will of the Father. And what the will of the Father was, was putting others first. Always putting others above myself. And it is so very difficult to live out. And yet wisdom plays itself out in your life based upon the fruit that it produces. Now finally, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse 18, one of my favorite translations of this is out of the NIV, and it says that peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. I don't know how many of you would love to have a harvest of righteousness, but I know I certainly would. And when I do not see that harvest, I have to wonder, what kind of seed have I been sowing? Have I been sowing peace? Well, then I'm going to see a harvest of righteousness. And you guys remember the rules of reaping and sowing. There were threefold. First, I always reap the kind that I sow. Secondly, I'm always going to reap after I sow. And thirdly, I'm always going to reap more than I sow. Always the same kind, always after, always more. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves when we're frustrated, when we have a harvest of frustration, why am I frustrated? Well, what seed are you sowing? Or better yet, what are you allowing to be sowed into your life? That little black flat screen box that hangs on your wall, it's amazing how awful of a seed that sows when we let it. One of the biggest culprits, and this is probably going to offend some, it's the Fox Newses and the CNNs 
and it's the MSNBCs, and over and over again, it's strife, and it's struggle, and it's anything but peace. And we let that thing play in the background for hours upon hours of our day, and then we're amazed when we have no peace. What if instead it was the Word of God? What if instead we sowed more of the Word and less of the world in our life? I think you'd be amazed at what would grow out of that. Peacemakers who sow peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. If we want to see peace in the lives of the people around us, if we want to see righteousness take place, what seed are you sowing in the lives of those you've been entrusted with? Does it look like the Word of God? It's the absolute best seed you could possibly sow. And you will, because Scripture is clear about this, see a harvest of righteousness in your families, in your friends, in your relationships, and in your own life, if we are determined to be peacemakers who sow the Word of God. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for James chapter 3. Lord, it is not easy for us to reflect upon, especially considering all the ways that we use these wicked tongues of ours. Father, I for one uh, repent of all the ways just this week that I have used my tongue for discord and disunity and to tear someone down when I should have been building up. Father, please help us all to be peacemakers who sow peace in the lives of others. Help us, Lord. We need you to bridle our tongues, to put a, a, a clamp down on any word that is not building up and not reassuring and not uh, taking care of someone or caring for or adding to a good reputation, not sowing in seeds of discord and destroying someone's reputation. Father, help us to be known as people who build up and not tear down. Help us to be fire fighters, not fire igniters when a situation comes around, Lord. Give us the courage to be able to boldly pray in a situation where we know there's nothing good taking place. Father, we need you in this spot in our lives. We need you to be the fruit that comes from our lips. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.